Let's take our hymn books, begin our time of worship with hymn number 16. The Lord is King, hymn number 16. The Lord is King, lift up, lift up thy voice, sing his praise, sing his praise. All heaven and earth before him now rejoice. Sing his praise, sing his praise. From world to world the joy shall ring, for he alone is God and King. From sky to sky his banners fling. Sing his praise, sing his praise. The Lord is King, let all his worth declare. Great is he, great is he. Bow to his will and trust his tender care. Great is he, great is he. No more murmur at his wise decrees. Nor doubt his steadfast promises. In humble faith, fall on thy knees. Great is he, great is he. The Lord is king, and bow to him ye must. God is great, God is good. The judge of all, to all is ever just. God is great, God is good. Holy and true are all his ways. Let every creature shout his praise. The Lord of hosts, ancient of days, God is great. God is good, the Lord is King throughout his vast domain. He is all, all in all, the Lord Jehovah evermore shall reign. He is all, all in all, through earth and heaven what song shall ring. From grateful hearts this anthem spring. Arise ye saints, salute thy King. All thy days sing his praise. Well, for our first scripture reading, let's turn in our Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. This book is attributed to Jeremiah who would have lived through the destruction of Jerusalem when Babylon, the Lord raised up to come down and take the city and destroy the temple. Gives us a little bit of perspective as to why this book is called Lamentations. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And you can see it's quite a lengthy chapter, and our purpose here is to read it and just make a few comments. But if you could see these particular chapters in their form in the Hebrew Bible, it's a song. 
called a dirge. And in this particular chapter, this is the third one, the structure is a little different. And it's made up of single lines in groups of three. And each one of those three start with the same consonant of the Hebrew alphabet. So literally, if you were to break this down, every three lines, it's starting with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, for example, in the first three verses here, these would all start with Alf, which is the A of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second three verses would be Bates, and then it would continue all the way to the end. It's amazing to me how the Lord caused his word to be written. And the beauty even of how his word is set forth in very poetic language. Now we can read this as Jeremiah being that man of sorrows, but I believe that here also is a prophetic look at the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What Jeremiah endured in the destruction of Jerusalem and of that temple is significant of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he bore, the contradiction of sinners against himself. So as we read this, we can do so with that twofold view. That yes, this does portray the sorrow and grief of Jeremiah as he saw the heavy hand of the Lord upon that city, but also upon him as he considered because of the sin of the people that all this was taking place. I don't think we ponder enough about what it meant to the Lord Jesus Christ to come to this earth and to bear the sin of his people, the sin bearer. That it was the travail of his soul, that's the way Isaiah put it, that he endured before the Lord. So here in verses 1 through 9, we see this man afflicted by the Lord. He said, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Who could say that more than the Lord Jesus Christ, enduring what he did for the salvation of his people. He hath led me and brought me into darkness. What could be darker than being the sin bearer and bearing up under the weight of that sin that was put to his charge as Christ was the mediator. And so he hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. The Lord Jesus didn't come down here to this earth to live a comfortable life. Just imagine the darkness that surrounded him. It was a world of darkness, he being the light, and yet he passed through this world and endured the affliction of sinners in his body on that tree. He says, surely against me is he turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. The Lord Jesus Christ, this is a statement and not a complaint. That if we want to understand why Christ endured the affliction that he did, well, it's because God is holy. And in order to be just, to justify sinners, it was necessary that he 
have the very hand of his father turned against him all the day. He has, in verse 4, my flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. We know that there weren't any actual bones broken of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was necessary that lamb be without blemish and without spot, but metaphorically, he was crushed, he was bruised for the sin of his people. Verse 5, he hath builded against me, encompassed me with gall and travail. Who could read this and not think of the travail of Christ's soul and compare this with Psalm 22? But it's what Jeremiah is experiencing as he contemplates God's wrath upon that city. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. It's not that the father did not hear his prayer or he was praying somehow contrary to God's will. No, Hebrews says he was heard and that he revered the father. But he was not to be delivered from that particular judgment that he came to bear on behalf of his people. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. And so you think about the attack. This is the attack of the enemy that God the Father was using to bring, first of all, judgment against the city of Jerusalem, against the temple, ultimately. Nebuchadnezzar being that instrument. And yet, Jeremiah speaks as if he himself is the object of God, like a bear, lying in wait, or as a lion in secret places. Or he hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. If you read the description here, this is more than just physical affliction. But this is the very affliction of his soul. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. The punishment or the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ were very real. He was not some kind of Teflon savior that did not feel. Scriptures say that he endured and experienced the very infirmities of this flesh, yet without sin. He was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And he says, thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. Such was the humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ typified here with Jeremiah. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. 
This shows to what degree that weight was upon him as he endured the affliction on behalf of that people. And, and Jeremiah here is much like Christ as a mediator, feeling the, the weight of God's judgment on that city, on that people, and all that it represented. But here we see in verses 19 and 20, I hope in God's help, it says in verse 19, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. So here Jeremiah says that in all of this, God's purpose was that he might be humbled under the mighty hand of the Lord. And he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. If you want to have an understanding of just what were the thoughts of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself and the very weight of the charge of the people's sin being put to his account, here's a, a clear declaration of Scripture that in this humbling under the mighty hand of God, he, God spared not his son, but delivered him up. Even so, then I recall to my mind, in other words, considering why it was he was enduring all that he was enduring. It was for the honor and glory of God, his father. And he said, therefore have I hope. And that's where we read here these mercies of a faithful God. This is good comfort to any one of us that may feel God's heavy hand of affliction on us. For the Lord's, nothing that the Lord deals with us in is by wrath. There's not an ounce of wrath in anything that he does because Christ bore that wrath. And yet the scriptures teach us that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so these afflictions, you stop and think about even now, you may be undergoing certain afflictions and trials, and you don't know which end is up. But even in that, the Lord is humbling you in order to exalt his own name. But he's faithful. That's what Jeremiah recalls here in verses 22 and through 25. It is the, of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail us. God does not deal with us according to our sin. He deals with us in mercy. Otherwise, we'd be consumed by it. He'd have to destroy us. But he dealt with a heavy hand on his son. He spared not his son, but delivered him up. So there we see the mercies of the Lord. And he says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Think about that. The Lord is my portion saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. Even our Lord Jesus Christ that did not look to man or any help from man. He was completely shut up to his father and his compassions. And we think there in verse 23, they are new every morning. Morning ends the night, doesn't it? Things look different in the morning. Morning brings a new day. And certainly that's so with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ushered in a new day when he was raised from, 
from the grave. Every morning brings new provision for that day. That's why scriptures tell us, take no thought for tomorrow, for sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Every morning brings new thoughts of God and his faithfulness and strength as the Lord gives it. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. But it's all based upon God's faithfulness, not our own. Great is thy faithfulness. Verse 23. And so we see here a picture of how God cares for his own. Certainly a Jeremiah being a type of Christ. His father never abandoned him. He was ever with him through every aspect of his work as a substitute. Here we see the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. This isn't just information that he's living on, but the Lord himself is his portion. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should hope, both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It's not what we do. We wait on him and his mercy and his grace and to quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. That's what our Lord did. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Didn't open his mouth as a, a lamb who before her shears is done, so our Lord opened not his mouth. There's a picture of waiting, hoping, believing that when this work was done that he came to accomplish, that indeed God would be faithful to honor that work that he did. And so we see here hope silently before the Lord. It is good that we should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 27, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Think about when our Lord Jesus Christ went into the ministry. It was at 30 years of age. That's the age where priests, high priests entered into the ministry at age 30. And he was in the prime of his youth. So when it speaks here that a man, he bear the yoke of his youth, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't die a natural death, but he was given that yoke to bear that God the Father might be just to justify. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. Many times, even though Christ had that public ministry, he was alone with his father. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so there be, may be hope. That's how our Lord endured. Bowed his lips to the ground in, in humbleness. Says he in verse 30, you say, well, how do you know this is all a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, read verse 30, how can you not? Read that, he giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. That's the reproach of sinners against his person, against his work. And that's what he did to give his cheek to those that would strike him is a picture of patient, enduring, or suffering. That's what our Lord did. And so our Lord Jesus gave his cheek to those that smote him. He patiently received that suffering as being from his father. The men that put him to the cross 
They were but God's instruments, but it was God who put him there. And so he willingly and patiently endured. And here's the hope, verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Our Lord's trials, Lord Jesus, his trial was to be but for a time. And then when it was finished, he rose again and sent it on high. He's no longer bearing that sin. It's been borne away. But for a while it was necessary that he be cast off. But though he caused grief, verse 32, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Our Lord Jesus experienced that, and so we can say that. In him he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. The Lord wasn't doing these things just out of vengeance. He didn't turn aside from his justice when he was dealing with his son, but rather his justice was what was the reason for his dealing with his son. If you ever wonder, well, why did, what kind of God would smite his son, a holy God? That's what's required that Christ should come and earn and establish that justice, that God might be just and justified. That's what he did. So here in verses 37 to 39, we, we see, if you want, again, to know and to think about the prayers that our Lord would pray to his Father, those many times that he was there all night, and the New Testament doesn't record necessarily what he was praying, but I know he was praying this word, because it was necessary that he fulfill every aspect, every jot till of this word. So here in verse 37, who is he that saith and it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not? Jeremiah is reflecting on this, no matter what the evil, and he said, this is, this is the hand of the Lord, but so our Lord never complained against his father. He recognized that this is what the Lord had commanded. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. There's not two gods here where devil's on one side and God on the other. No. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Shall he not command both? Wherefore doth a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. Christ had no sins, but for the punishment of the sins of his people, he bore willingly all that the Father put on him without complaint. And so we see this humbling before the Lord, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain. Thou hast not pitied. He's talking about that wrath of God upon the rebellious sons of Israel in Jerusalem. Destruction. No hope. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. This is describing now those that the Lord has left to themselves. Thou hast made us the off-scouring and refuge in the midst of the people. See, Jeremiah is being very transparent here and recognizing that this judgment of the Lord against Jerusalem, even what he was feeling was just. 
All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare has come upon us. Desolation and destruction. That's what it is to be under God's wrath without a mediator. And so he said, mine eye runneth down with rivers of, of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. But it's a picture also of what Christ would have endured. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not without any intercession. There was none to intervene for our Lord, nor would he want it to be so, because if he acknowledged that it was going to be through this means that God would put away sin. He said, to the Lord look down and behold from heaven, mine eye affecteth mine heart because of all the daughters of my city. Mine enemies chased me sore like a bird without a cause. Certainly our Lord was hated without a cause. There's a picture there of that. They have cut off my life from the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over my head, and then I said, I'm cut off. This is the death in which our Lord Jesus Christ anticipated and must come. And he bowed to it. He said, I call upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, fear not. All of this is the picture of Christ's prayers to the Father and the Father comforting his son, even through this trial and through this representation of the death for his people. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong. Judge thou my cause. When it says that I have seen my wrong, it's certainly not that Christ had any wrong, but it was the sin that he bore of his people. And uh, here he is like a, an attorney or an advocate, as the word the scriptures use, inter interceding on behalf of those that he knows to be guilty. But he's pleading the case for his life and for that of those that he represents there. There's a lot in that verse. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong, judge thou my cause. Don't, he's saying, don't look upon the people that I represent, look upon me. Thou hast seen all their vengeance and all their imaginations against me. Thou hast heard their reproach, O Lord, and all their imaginations against me. When we talk about sins nailing Christ to the cross. If he paid for my sin debt or your sin debt, then our sins nailed him to that cross. We take the blame. The lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day, behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. That's what they did with our Lord. Mocking him, even as he hung there on the cross. He said, render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. In other words, if any were not the Lord's for whom he was paying the debt, then that same wrath that fell upon the Lord would fall upon them. Give them sorrow of heart, thy curse unto them, persecute and destroy them in anger from under the heavens of the Lord. What a tremendous song 
that we have here that Jeremiah is describing the weight of what he endured as he saw the Lord bringing his wrath against that city of Jerusalem, against even the temple. But you can see in it prophetically, our Lord Jesus Christ would have borne up under the, the weight of God's wrath as he endured it on behalf of his people. Gracious Father, I thank you for this word, how profound it is, and even reading through it as we have, how we need to go back and consider again just what your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured for sinners such as we are, that you might be a just God and Savior. So we commend the rest of our time of worship to you and pray for your blessing. May our hearts and minds be on the Lord Jesus Christ alone, in whose name I pray, amen. All right, one more hymn, and we'll get to the message of the hour. Let's turn to hymn number 334, Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. Thy King of heaven, thy treasure thou art. Thy King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Part of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, a ruler of all. All right, well, let's take our Bibles and look together in 2 Kings chapter 23. And my text for this message is verse 31 down to verse 37. And I've entitled this, Point of No Return. We've seen how the Lord was mercifully upholding and keeping these last two tribes of southern Israel, Judah and Benjamin, remember the other tribe, but known as Judah under one head. And yet, as we see time going on, they followed the path of their sister, the ten tribes of Israel that the Lord had already taken 
hundred years earlier into captivity by Assyria. At that time, Babylon wasn't even a powerful empire yet. It shows how God rules. And yet as time went on, Assyria became less and less of a power. In other words, the Lord raises up kingdoms and puts them down. And now Babylon is being raised up. That's where we read with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They would have been prophets that would have prophesied during this time and actually experienced the king of Babylon coming down. He came down three different times. It was the third time when he came down that he completely destroyed the city and the temple. Jeremiah was preserved and fled into Egypt where the Lord prepared a way for him there. And then the rest were taken into captivity. So as we're studying these books, you can kind of put these in perspective. That when you get to Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah, Lamentations that we just read in scripture reading, that was all in this time of God bringing judgment upon that city. But the point is, there does come a point of no return where this judgment had already been determined and as we say the wheels of justice are like the, the mill that grinds slowly but surely so that when that time comes there's nobody that can say unto the Lord what doest thou or stay his hand or stop it once it's set in motion that King Josiah was the last king that God raised up and used to bring about certain changes. And certainly from that standpoint, he was considered to be a good king, but now he's gone. And so here in verse 31, We, we saw last time where Josiah had, had gone into battle against Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, there in verse 29, and went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. So Josiah thought, rather than just stay put and stay at home, let be what was, he sought again an alliance to with Egypt to go up against Assyria. And when he did, it says that the king Josiah, when he went up against the king of Assyria, all the way to the river Euphrates, so you can look on a map from Jerusalem all the way up there, what we would know today as Iraq, that particular area of the world. It says that the king of Assyria slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. And so the servants, verse 30, carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulcher. Now here's where we see men again attempting to find a solution themselves because typically it would be the firstborn Josiah that you would think would reign in 
Josiah's step. He was the firstborn. But here it says the people of the land, verse 30, took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him. So he was the younger son, Jehoahaz, of Josiah. But they anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. It shows again where when man thinks to be able to do better than God and somehow bring about change according to their liking, when in reality it's not the Lord's will. And I'll tell you, the Lord's will is going to be done regardless. Here was their popular king. This is like those that anointed Saul. They wanted Saul to be their king and not David. Here they took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and actually that name means Jehovah has seized. So they recognize even in this name that here was one that was in the hand of the Lord, and yet he was not to be that king that would in any way be able to deliver the children of Judah, the remaining tribes. In fact, when you come over to, now this is probably a throne name that was given to him, Jehoahaz. When you come over to, for example, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 11. Again, this is all, while Jeremiah was there in the land, all this was going on. But in Jeremiah 22, 11, his actual name is Shalom. So this was a given name for him as a king. In Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 11, it says, For thus saith the Lord, touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah, his father, which went forth out of this place, he shall not return thither anymore. So even though men promoted him and gave him this title as king, yet he was not to be one that the Lord would bless in any way to provide any kind of deliverance at this point for the children of Israel. In fact, in spite of all that King Josiah had done, as wonderful as they were, it didn't last long this youngest son that the people had taken and proclaimed to be king. You can read that back here in verse 32 of 2 Kings 23. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So he had a mark on him to begin with. Didn't matter what people proclaimed about him and thought him to be perhaps a better candidate than his older brother. So they proclaimed him to be the king, and yet it was short-lived. In fact, when you go over to Matthew chapter 1, his name is completely omitted. Remember now, these are the kings of Judah. And Matthew chapter 1 talks about the lineage of David and of the tribe of Judah leading up to Christ, and yet here we don't find his name mentioned. 
it says there in verse 11, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brother about the time they were carried away to Babylon. So it doesn't even mention here Jehoiaz, but Jeconias. And after that, they were brought to Babylon. Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abihu, and Abihu begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok. And you can see, keep on reading down there, verse 16, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So it didn't change in any way God's purpose that Christ should still come through this lineage. But the lesson we see there is that it's not going to be as man determines, but as God alone determines. And so here we see in verse 32 that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, contrary to his father Josias, that the Lord had raised up to do good. And as with any evil, doing evil will not fare well. Here he was about three months in this position. And then you read in verse 33 that he was then made a prisoner and lived and died as a prisoner. Even though the people said, let this man reign, Rather than seeking the Lord, this shows again just to what point they were shut up to themselves. And again, beyond the point of return, they weren't even thinking about the Lord's mind and will at this point. Even though the, the danger was there and looming, and God had raised up these prophets, letting them know judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Yet they still determined that they would avoid it with a man of their own choosing. So verse 33 tells us that Pharaoh Necho put him in bands at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem. So while they had made this alliance with Egypt to go up against who they thought was the real enemy, Assyria, yet that was not to be the enemy that would ultimately destroy them, would be Babylon. We see a lot of up and down with nations today, and this one more powerful than that one, and people fretting and wondering about it all. Guess what? The Lord's will be done. It doesn't matter who you put in that place. We're in a political season. Everybody's thinking that's going to be one man that's going to save the day. Well, stand by. The Lord may just bind them all in chains and haul them off to China or Russia somewhere. The Lord give this whole place up. I know that doesn't sound too patriotic to some, but there's no reason when you consider why the Lord should ever consider the United States of America. It's anything but a Christian nation. And yet here we are. We're worshiping peacefully right here so far. We don't know how much longer it'll be. We may live days like Jeremiah. And if so, the Lord's will be done. But that's what happened with him. They bound him up faster than he could even think that he might not reign in Jerusalem and put the land to a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and 
the town of gold. The more they tried, the worse it got. The Lord putting the, the clamps down on them. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. So here we find actually Pharaoh, Nico. Pharaoh was a title, so it goes all the way back to Egypt. That was a, a royal line that was still in existence many hundreds of years later. But after the defeat of the king Josiah in battle, that's that same Pharaoh Nico up there, king of Egypt, when he went up against the king of Assyria, that Josiah was killed. And so he imposed that tribute on the land, but then he put on the throne of Judah a puppet king. The Lord was in all of this because they weren't looking to the Lord anyway. This was the brother of Jehoahaz who would have been initially, originally set up as the king. And yet the Lord removed the younger and put him in a place. His name, he was renamed Jehoiakim. And interestingly enough, it was by Pharaoh of Egypt that he was renamed. He turned his name to Jehoiakim. Here's a pagan king that names Eliakim, one of the sons of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and that Jehoiakim means whom Jehovah has set up. At least he was declaring the truth that it wasn't going to be for any power in himself. So Eliakim here would have been another son of Josiah, and he was made king by the king of Egypt thinking that by him raising up this king that it would bring the, the people more willingly to be subject to him as the king of Egypt. But ultimately, that wasn't God's purpose. And that's when the Lord, over time, brought Babylon up against the city of Judah. Here it is again, beyond the point of no return. There was nothing that they did anybody did that was going to change the ultimate end of the destruction. The king of Egypt using his power to make him king and by changing his name gave lip service at least to the, but that's, that's religion and politics. By giving lip service to Jehovah God of Israel that somehow they could get along. But ultimately, the king of Egypt made him poor, subjected him to tributes of 100 talents of silver and gold, and then squeezed everything out of his subjects and gave it to Pharaoh. It says in verse 35, and Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of land of everyone according to the, his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. There's a picture also of when the Lord gives men up to their own devices, it's nothing but subjection. It's not freedom. 
people that think that somehow by their devices they're going to change my, God's mind or come out with a different conclusion like you hear people saying today if we'll just cry unto the Lord and acknowledge our sin that somehow he's going to be merciful. In this case, there was no more mercy to be shown. The Lord was removing all the powers that be and subjecting those that remained to very serious bondage. That's works religion. Anything you think by aligning with men to somehow make yourself better before God, you're only going to know further condemnation and judgment. And that's all that trusting in men and looking to men will do is make you poor. Strip you of everything you have. There's only, that's why Paul said, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Our liberty is in Christ. It's what he endured. And our blessing is in him. And what he earned and established that God should be just to justify such sinners as we are. So verses 36 and 37 describe Jehoiakim and his reign over Judah. He, he lined himself up with Pharaoh. Now that he was put in power by this Pharaoh, then he, he made sure he followed suit. And he taxed the land according to the command of Pharaoh. That's the way it is in man-made religion. There's always going to be the taxation and the do's and the don'ts. And all of that being imposed. It's interesting that even Jehoiakim did not have a sense of the impending judgment. Once he was put into power, power, they, like they say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When he was put in power, it was as if he had forgotten everything that had taken place in that lineage and his family up to this point. In fact, if you go over to Jeremiah chapter 22, again, just showing you a couple of these parallel portions of scripture, he was wasting resources in constructing a new palace by forced labor. You talk about being blind, building up a new palace when God has already declared that the, the city and the people would be destroyed. Here in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verses 13 through 19, we read, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness. Now, in the context, coming back up to what we saw last time in verse 11, that's who he's talking about here. For thus saith the Lord, touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah his father, which went forth out of this place, he shall not return to them more, but he shall die in a place whether they have, whether they led him captive and shall see this land no more. So that's his brother. And yet now, woe unto him that takes the place, woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. That's describing this taxation. That following Pharaoh Nico's instructions imposed, again, more burden on the people. Think back in Egypt. 
That's a picture of works religion, never satisfied. That saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cutteth him out windows and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? See, this is Jeremiah warning this king. You're acting like you're building this palace or house for yourself using all the forced labor to do it. Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. It's talking about Josiah. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord, but thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning who? Jehoiakim. That's Eliakim, who was named Jehoiakim by the Egyptian Pharaoh. Son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And so that's exactly how he died. If you go over to Jeremiah chapter 36, I've been prayerfully considering whether or not from here in 2 Kings, our next book we look at be Jeremiah because of the context, everything, all of this going together. But you can see what Jeremiah was dealing with here in this reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, like his brother Jehoaz, left to himself, had people in bondage. It wasn't directing them as Josiah had to the Lord. And so here we see Jeremiah 36, 22 and 24, how it describes the ungodliness of Jehoiakim. It says, now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the earth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves. What he's doing here is actually reading the word of God in his presence. And they went in verse 20 into the court, but they laid up the roll of the chamber of Elishim on the scribe and told him all the words in the ears of the king. These were scribes that were transcribing the word of the Lord. And they were reading this in his ears. And you can see that Verse 21, the king sent Jehudi, this would be Jehoiakim, to fetch the roll, the scroll, and took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. We don't know exactly what portion he was reading, but it was enough to make him mad. Whenever... The word is preached. People get glad, and some get glad, and some get mad. Well, he got mad because he didn't find in it anything to appease him. He was determined. So here's the point of no return. In the hardness of his heart, determined that he was going to be blessed of the Lord. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, 
This would be that palace that he was building for himself and his comfort. And there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. It came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, these were detached parchments, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid. That's amazing, isn't it? Nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. I ask you, is it any different today when you take this word and read it? Who takes it seriously? This, this word of the Lord has turned, been turned into a, an amusement, an entertainment. To entertain people on the road to hell. But I'll tell you this, God's wrath abides upon any that don't have Christ as their mediator. And it doesn't matter how lightly people will treat this word. It doesn't change the word. You can deny it, you can burn it, you can do anything that you think is to your benefit, but in the end, that wrath of God abides upon you. In fact, to add to all the former evils, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 26, we talk about Jeremiah being a prophet during this time. And this, this is typical of what they did with the Lord. He came unto his own, his own received him not. So in Jeremiah 26, and verse 20, at this time it says there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath Jireh, who prophesied against this city, against this land, according to all the words of Jeremiah and what they do. And this is during the time of Jehoiakim. It says, when Jehoiakim, the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went into Egypt. And Jehoiakim, the king, sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him in Egypt. And they fetched forth Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. So you can see when the Lord shuts up the heart of a sinner, there's no turning back. A lot of people think it's because they're still alive that somehow they're under God's blessing. But just like these, the Lord's given them up to their own reprobate minds. So it behooves us by his grace when we have opportunity to hear this word, to hear it. And pray God gives us ears to hear. Or else such would be our end. All right, let's sing hymn number 485, and it will be dismissed. 485. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love. For Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, 
For the Spirit of life, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Alleluia, thine the glory. Alleluia, amen. Alleluia, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise. To the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and has cleansed every stain. Alleluia, thine the glory. Alleluia, amen. Alleluia, thine the glory. Revive us again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Alleluia, thine the glory. Alleluia, amen. Alleluia, thine the glory. Revive us again.